It is five o'clock in Salford. How are you doing? It's lovely. It's been a glorious afternoon here in the Northwest. Hope it's been fine wherever you happen to be. Thanks for finding me. I'm Richie Allen. This is Wednesday's Richie Allen Show, live from BBG Towers. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It really is, you know. Not just making it up like. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. I'm all right now, but this morning I was in rough shape, I don't mind telling you. It says the 20th of April 2022 in the year of Arnold 2022. Gerardo Colmon, that is the great Gerardo Colmon. He will join me a little bit later on in the programme, live from Paris, not far from Paris. We're going to talk Ukraine, Russia. Where are we? Where are we at? Where are we going? What's happening? He's a brilliantly briefed Irishman, and I look forward to him joining us a little bit later. Before that, though, you and I will run down the day's uh, biggest news stories. What a cliche that is. It's been slim pickings today, slim pickings. There's been a lot of old party gate bollocks, a lot of party gate bollocks, a lot of that going on. It's been slim pickings today. Have you noticed that? Party gate and all of that old jazz. And I suppose reports from Ukraine too. But look, we're here. I'm here, you're there, we can chat, you can reach me through my website, which is richieallen.co.uk. Comment live, leave a message, leave one, and I will, I swear to God and his son Jesus that I will read them out as I go along. I caught, I caught her red-handed, the oft-mentioned El Frogo. She was watching the Johnny Depp and Amber Heard trial this afternoon. (laughs) Fascinated she was, listening to it, not watching it, because she's working. She's working, she's an accountant, she was doing accounts and listening to it in the background. It's not exactly the O.J. Simpson trial now, is it? God, how I remember those days. Very fondly, I was in hospital during it with a shattered leg, And I sat there, riveted every day. Really, honestly, loved it, watching the O.J. Simpson trial. And thinking to myself, this isn't like anything I've ever seen on television or in film. It's very, well, it's very civilised, I remember thinking. Nobody is walking around in front of the witnesses pointing fingers. Nobody is screaming objection really loudly. None of that. It was all very quiet and civilised. Yeah, I was in hospital. And I loved Judge Ito. Remember Judge Ito, Judge Lance Ito? They took the royal piss out of him on the Jay Leno show, particularly on the Tonight Show with Jay Leno. I remember with the dancing Judge Ito's. And Cato Kalin, remember that dipshit? Remember him? The actor. What a farce it was. But uh, Amber Heard, Johnny Depp. Yes, I've been beavering away today for this programme. And I've been listening to it myself too. I I couldn't help it. It was on in the background. Johnny's been on the stand mumbling for two days about how his mother scared the living shite out of him 
and how Amber is a bit like his mother and how he didn't want to leave her because his dad left his mother and his mother became suicidal. So he's mumbling away on the stand and it seems to be capturing the imagination of social media Maybe because it's Johnny Depp. Maybe because it's Amber Heard. We did get a good wine recommendation out of Johnny, though, today. He said Amber could polish off two bottles of Vega Cecilia. He said Cecilia. Cecilia. Vega Cecilia. A night. She could polish off two bottles of Vega Cecilia in a sitting. Wowzers. That's $500 a bottle of wine, by the way. Now, I get my wine for £5.99 from my local corner shop. And I've got news for Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. Uh, Drink the first bottle of Blossom Hill fast enough and you can't taste the difference between it, the Blossom Hill, and Vega Sicilia. That's a top tip, that. It really is. Once you neck your first four glasses pretty quickly, doesn't matter what you've got coming next it, it all tastes the same after that. That's my opinion. In any case, Johnny Depp, yeah. Fell out of love with Johnny when he made those Pirates of the Caribbean films. Dreadful crap those, weren't they? I mean, that should have been the quickest conversation in the world when his agent rang him, you know. How you doing, jo- How you doing, Bill? What have you got for me? Well, Johnny, they want to make a film about a ride from Disneyland. Johnny should have bitch-slapped the bejesus out of him. But he didn't. He sold his soul to the devil and he made three or four films based on a theme park ride. Garbage that. When you think back to some of the stuff Johnny did earlier on in his career, he demonstrated that he was quite the talented actor. That is in this non-thespian opinion because I know nothing about it. I just know what I like and I like what I bloody well know. Thought crimes and indecency are everywhere today. Did you see? Have you noticed that today? Um, This caught my imagination because the Madeleine McCann story was very big in 2007 when we were in Spain. On Spawn, as they say, Osquelga, that's Ireland, that's Irish for Spain. On Spawn, the Spawn basically Spain. And in 2007, she went missing in Praia de Luz, or Praia de Luz, uh, Madeleine McCann. But um, a burger van has been censored by the Advertising Standards Authority for featuring pictures of Madeleine McCann on the side of the burger van. It has been deemed to be offensive. The ads for the Otley Burger Company, which must have more than one van, Otherwise, it wouldn't be called the Otley Burger Company. So this ad ran over Mother's Day. It showed Madeline and her mother, Kate McCann, with the caption, with burgers this good, you'll leave your kids at home. What's the worst that could happen? Dreadful stuff. And in the background on the, on, on the caption, in the background is an image of a man running with a smaller image of Madeline McCann in his hands alongside the words, Happy Mother's Day to all the mums out there. So they've been done for that. Advertising Standards Authority says, no, we can't have any of that. Q now, Q. Listeners to this programme sharing their many theories about what really happened to Madeleine McCann. 
futile exercise and exercise in futility because nobody really knows. A number of truthers have made a series of documentaries explaining why they feel that their theory or particular theory or idea is the correct one, but ultimately nobody really knows what happened to Madeleine McCann. It, it interested me as a journalist that so much time and attention was given to it by the police and by the UK government. Millions of pounds have been spent trying to locate Madeline, who would be how old now? 20? No. 18? 17? I have no idea. And Kate Jarvis, who was in EastEnders back in 2018, um, has been sentenced to a community order because she screamed, Black lives don't matter outside a fish and chip restaurant. Is that an oxymoron? A fish and chip restaurant, really? A chipper, we would say, or we would have said back in the day. Uh, she was in Southend-on-Sea in Essex, great place, back in July of 2020. Pissed right up, presumably. The 30-year-old girl got into a dispute over a chair with a group of women, some of whom were black. She got into a bit of a dispute over a chair. Someone tried to take an empty chair, which was at a table where a black woman was sitting. And somebody said that seat is already taken. There was a bit of a kickoff, and the former EastEnders actress shouted, Black lives don't matter, and included an expletive in that sentence, presumably, Black lives don't fucking matter. And then she said, I'm a celebrity, and ran off. Proper day out she was having. She got back to the hotel where she was staying and ended up having a fight with a bouncer. Fan dabby dozy. That just sounds like a regular Friday night out for. For, for a boy from Ballybeg. Community order, she's been sentenced to. Couple of hundred hours of community service. And finishing with the theme of outrage and, and free speech and freedom of expression, a man has received a 10-year suspended sentence. 10 years now, right? Now, getting a 10-year suspended sentence is actually getting a 10-year jail sentence. It's the same thing, except you won't serve the sentence unless you fall foul of the law again. This is the guy who, shortly after the Grenfell Tower fire, made a video, or was part of a video, which showed a cardboard model of Grenfell Tower being chucked on a bonfire while people laughed and shouted silly things. This is Paul Busetti of Sundial Avenue in Croydon. What an, what, what an exotic name. <laughs> Sundial Avenue in Croydon. Croydon, eh? I know Croydon well too. Most Irishmen do. Not a place now you'd want to get lost late at night is Croydon, or at least it wasn't back in the time when I lived in London. Anyway, Paul pleaded guilty. The clip was recorded at a party in London a year after the Tower Fire which killed 72 people. It got shared on WhatsApp. He was given... A, no, no, not 10 years, you stupid baldy bastard. A 10-week suspended jail sentence. This is the worst news roundup in the world right now. Yeah, he was given a 10-week suspended jail sentence, which, as I said, is like getting a 10-week jail sentence. So for 10 weeks now, he's bound over to the peace. Don't screw up or they'll chuck you in the clink. I don't agree with any of this, of course. I don't agree with making videos that mock people who died, but I also don't agree that it's any um, business of the police's. 
None whatsoever. No more than it's the business of the police if some pissed up EastEnders actress shouts black lives don't matter at a woman over a dispute over a fucking chair. That's not the business of the police either. It just isn't. There was no violence. There was no victim. It's all mad. It's all mad. Uh, The magistrate who saw the video said it was horrific. Horrific to see somebody chuck a bit of cardboard on a bonfire. Disrespectful and abhorrent, he said. Grossly offensive. I suspect it was offensive to almost everybody who has an ounce of decency about them. But, But no, you see. Nobody belonged to me died in Grenfell. Thankfully. So because nobody belonged to me died at Grenfell, I couldn't give a shit that a guy made a video of a model and chucked it on a bonfire. Couldn't give a damn. So I wouldn't, couldn't, never would be impossible for me to be offended by it. I just think he's a bit of an Egypt, personally. But we can't be choking everybody who's a bit of an Egypt in jail because, um, well, you'd have to locate a new planet, wouldn't you, ultimately? Shall we move on? Shall we move on? We will in a moment. I'm going to play a tune. When we come back, we'll talk about Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks co-founder. Bad news for him and his supporters today. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes' time. At least I hope we will. In fact, I know we will. This is the Richie Allen Show for Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. This is Eagle Eye Cherry from the year 1998. This is called Save Tonight. Welcome. Eagle Eye Cherry Save Tonight on the Richie Allen Show, 17 minutes past five. It is so good to be with you. It's, uh, as I said, it's a beautiful afternoon, late afternoon here in Salford. Glorious. The, the, the Amber Heard thing, Twitter is absolute vaudeville. It's hilarious to watch people watching it. There's an element of goggle box to Twitter. Some of the comments are hilarious. People taking what they hear as fact. It's a crystallization, really, maybe of where we are. Humanity, maybe. Some sort of window onto why people accepted the scamdemic and everything they were told. I mean, you've got people repeating verbatim on Twitter some of Johnny Depp's testimony as if it must be true. I'm not saying it isn't, but how do they know, you know? John, here's one guy, that umbrella on Twitter. Johnny Depp says that Amber Heard was mocking him so much on their plane ride where she says she kicked him that he retreated to the bathroom floor and went to sleep. <laughs> Must be true. Must be true. They're going mad over that Vegas Cecilia bottle of wine. $500, you can't go wrong with that. Anyway, we'll leave that alone. It isn't important. It's tabloid nonsense. Now, this morning, a judge at Westminster Magistrates Court issued an order for Julian Assange to be transferred to the United States to face charges of spying. You know by now, of course you do, that he's wanted in America for leaking, well, many, many hundreds of thousands of documents pertaining to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So this moves the possibility that he will be extradited to the United States a little bit closer. In fact, it's now in the hands of the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, to decide whether or not to proceed. Again, 
you have to take that with a pinch of salt. Pretty Patel isn't in charge of anything. She's a window dresser, as is her boss, or her alleged boss. Right, so it's down now to the Home Secretary to make the decision. Um, the order was uh, issued this morning. It was a very brief hearing, but it doesn't exhaust the legal options available to Julian Assange. Let's have a listen to a guy. What's his name again? Let me see. Reporting on this for LBC Radio is a guy called Matthew Thompson. He is speaking with, uh, I don't know, just have a listen. Here's Matthew Thompson. The next stage is that Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, will have to decide on whether to actually extradite uh, Julian Assange or to not. To Rwanda or to... No, <laughs> no that would be directly to the United no. States. Okay. Um, just checking. And she's got, uh, I think his lawyers have until the 18th of May to make some legal submissions. So they can still make legal arguments to Priti Patel, even if they couldn't in court this morning. And then even if Priti Patel uh, decides to extradite Julian Assange, we don't know what she's going to do, of course, but I I might simply note, Sheila, that uh, going so publicly against the wishes of the United States government at a time of international crisis in Ukraine Mm -hmm. may not be the most uh, obvious political manoeuvre, but we don't know what she's going to decide. But even if she does decide to extradite him, that is not yet the end of the story. So let me let me explain this best by giving a quick summary of how on earth we got where we are. Right, well, shall I go for a tea yeah, break? Please, yeah. by all means, I'm now taking over. This is LBC, no, with, no, LBC that, with Matthew Thompson. No, that wasn't meant to be offensive to you. It was because this is such a saga, I could literally re- leave the room for half an hour. A saga, says Sheila Fogarty. I could leave the room for half an hour. Such a saga. Lots of giggles, lots of laughs, lots of jollity. But, but, but Julian Assange is facing being extradited to the United States where he'll undoubtedly be tortured. And he'll undoubtedly be locked up. He won't get due process. He won't get a fair trial. And all he did was released into the public domain documents which were of huge interest to people, you know, relating to the Iraq and Afghanistan debacles. They think it's funny. These LBC goons. Sheila Fogarty and this guy Thompson. So right good laugh this. Julian Assange has been in Belmarsh for three years. He's not very well. I'm not his biggest fan now. Never have been. I'm I'm no hypocrite. But um, what's happening to him is outrageous. Journalists shouldn't be giggling at it. They should be screaming bloody murder. But they're not. Go for it. Um, look, <laughs> so this, this, this began... Well, Julian Assange has been in custody in, in prison in the, in the UK since 2019 when Ecuador, uh, he was obviously in the Ecuadorian embassy for mm. many years, uh, they withdrew his asylum status in 2019. He was then arrested by British police um, and uh, was in prison during which time the US filed charges against him of espionage. So this particular legal saga started at Westminster Magistrates Court in uh, January of last year, 2021. Westminster Magistrates Court ruled that he could not be extradited because there were concerns over his mental health. The US then appealed that decision and in December last year the High Court said that they were they could appeal it essentially that, that he could be extradited because they had essentially given some assurances that he would not be subject to the harshest possible measures solitary confinement in a maximum security prison etc etc um, with some important caveats um, but that's getting into perhaps too much detail. Um, 
But essentially, they said it could go ahead. He then challenged that decision in the Supreme Court uh, in February this year. The Supreme Court didn't allow the challenge, so they they didn't even allow it to proceed. So on that basis, that leads us to today, where the Westminster Magistrates Court had to give that court order. So I thought you were going to go right back to the beginning. Oh, well, we don't have that much time. <laughs> I thought we were going to go that back would, to Harrods that... and the embassy. And, no, good. Well, that would take, that would take exactly. us into Eddie Mayer's show, point. wouldn't it? That's the problem. <laughs> yes, it, would, it would. Yeah, it's a big laugh. I made the point in an article I posted about it today that the silence in the mainstream media here in the UK is deafening. It has been throughout. Even when Assange, Assange even, excuse me, was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy. Nothing. Um, to your comments now, uh, Craig on the Grenfell Tower model burning, which has led to a man receiving a 10-week suspended sentence. He asks, who remembers those government instruction videos showing the effects of a nuclear explosion on the average town? They used life-sized models and then burnt them, just like the citizens of Nagasaki. Or what about model makers the world over reconstructing all sorts of horrors? I think people have become far too over-emotional. I agree. I think if you've lost someone... In Grenfell, it couldn't, I couldn't imagine it. How could I? Fortunately, it's never happened to me. You have an absolute right to be annoyed and to be disgusted and to think, how could people be so childish? Can they not think for a minute that there are real people suffering? But those are the victims' families. Everybody else, grow up, you know. You can't um, tell people what they should and shouldn't laugh at. You cannot legislate for humour. There are people who laugh at things that would sicken us, but you can't or shouldn't legislate for it. It's as simple as that. My, th- my, my, my lifelong belief on all of that is ig-fucking-nore. Ignore the things that have been said about me and my family online since I've begun doing these types of programmes. Laugh at it. Not so easy, maybe, when people have died. I understand that. But you can't be jailing people or giving them sentences, suspended or otherwise. Max is listening in the sunny Algarve this week. How are you doing, Max? Thank you. I'm well and I'm glad to be back. Back in action this week. Paul says, from looking at Amber Heard in court, her wares are probably not worth 50 million divorce payment. It's a strange one. Johnny Depp is spending the equivalent of the gross domestic product of a small country in a bid to clear his name, which has led some people to opine, well, that he must be telling the truth. Nobody would spend so many tens of millions of dollars. They would have taken their medicine and gone away. Alan says that all lives matter unless you're in the World Economic Forum. Then only your mates' lives matter. Us, the plebs, we don't matter. How we take it in hand to make it matter. I am unsure. Hmm. Keith says, you're only out by a factor of 52, Richie. I always believed you were above human error. Nice to know you are a mere mortal like the rest of us, he says. Oh, yeah, the tenth, yeah, the ten years, yeah. I know I'm on one. I'm on one today. I had a funny day today. I spoke to a number of people about coming on the programme, and most of them couldn't come on the programme today with, with good reason, and they'll come on 
at a later date. But some just flatly refused to come on the programme, which is fine. I don't get offended by that. I find it amusing. But it was just one of those bloody days. I wanted to bring on somebody from the Satanic Temple today to speak with you. I wanted to have a chat with someone from the Satanic Temple. Why? Well, I've, I've been thinking about a bit of Satanism. No, I haven't. Of course not. I've been reading a story in the US press. You know, I read all the newspapers. I read every bloody thing. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Dallas Dipstick. Well, I read them all, right? And this is not new, new, but it's popping up all over the place. It popped up again yesterday. Um, an elementary school in Pennsylvania last night... Um, debated whether or not an after-school Satan club should be allowed to proceed. Now, the after-school Satan club was proposed by a parent at the school. The principal originally said, no way, we're not having an after-school Satan club. God only knows, no pun intended, what might come of it. This is the Satanic temple which claims it doesn't believe in Satan. It's a group that was set up to kind of push back against Christian extremism, is what it claims. And I invited one of the protagonists of the Satanic Temple to come on the programme today to have a bit of a chinwag about it. Because they use Baphomet, this horrible imagery that I, I really don't like, even though I, when it comes to religion, I'm agnostic. But as I've gotten a bit older and as I've borne witness, can I say as I've borne witness, can I say that as I bore witness English has deserted me to the things that have gone on in the last two years, I've begun to think that very darkness, very dark, that, that evil certainly does exist and not just evil in terms of the deeds of people but something else, something else that's not tangible, something else that's not visible, maybe. That's what I'm beginning to understand, but I could be wrong. That there is an evil, that, that it is possessing people or has possessed people. I'm not giving people a pass or an excuse. I believe in free will, but there's something else going on in my opinion. So I wanted to get to speak to this satanic temple. They might still come on, these people. I think they were a bit concerned I might be take, bringing them on to rip the piss out of them, which I wasn't. I don't do that. That's for idiots. I wanted to have a chat with them. But um, it's not the first school that um, where, where it has been proposed that an after-school Satan club is uh, basically launched for, for children to, 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 to gather at one night a week. Um, there's one in uh, Moline in, in Illinois, elementary school. There's one there. It's the Satanic Temple's nationwide campaign to push back against Christian good news clubs, which are offered to school children after some classes in some schools. Look, I thought it was interesting. I'm getting sick to death of talking about COVID and Ukraine. It's pushing me. It really is. It's pushing me to the extremes, man, where I might just start talking about celebrity gossip for two hours for the crack. Might bring you daily updates on the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp court case. Anything but COVID and Ukraine. Although I am looking forward to hearing from Gerardo Colmón a bit later on, on Ukraine and other issues. But I thought that would be a bit of colour.
what do you think this Baphomet stuff? Yeah. You can tell me, richieallen.co.uk. I think it's time I shot me K-Cole and moved along before time runs out on us. Yeah, 10 weeks suspended sentence, not 10 years. But look, the point still stands. The guy's got a criminal record for laughing at something. That isn't good. I to Bruce, who says he doesn't know if he should be proud or ashamed, but he didn't know that Pirates of the Caribbean was based on a theme park ride. However, I do like the first film, says Bruce. Get the hell off of my live stream, Bruce. Bruce, that's okay. I'm in the minority. Anyway, John came on to say, Justin Russia test-fired the new RS-28 Sarmat. Satan, he says, in brackets, intercontinental ballistic missile. This is the one that flies at 20,000 miles an hour, right? Isn't it? Uh, Vladimir Putin is on the record as saying the missile will provide food for thought for those who try to threaten Russia. Shall we stay with Ukraine then just for a moment? The former leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, who has had the whip removed by the Labour Party, meaning that he is effectively an independent MP for Islington. Is it Islington North? Is it Islington North? Sitting there with his little grey beard on him, Jezza Corbyn, who led the Labour Party? Well, he's not done very much media in the last couple of years, at least none that I've seen anyway. But today, he gave an interview to John Pienaar on Times Radio. Yes, the Times has a radio station. And they talked about Ukraine, they talked about NATO. Here is Jeremy Corbyn. Look, I don't believe that... um NATO caused the invasion of Ukraine. I believe that Russia caused the invasion of Ukraine by a decision made by Vladimir Putin. Um, What I do think it's important to analyse historically is what happened after the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1990-91, when uh, the Soviet Union essentially collapsed in part because of the Afghanistan war, but also economic and nationalist issues. Um, and the Warsaw Pact broke up. The raison d'etre for NATO disappeared at that time. There was then a quite serious debate about the direction in which um, military alliances should go at that stage. And there was um, people on both the left and the right all took a view, including, I believe, even Kissinger, I'm not sure, but I think he took some kind of view on that, that maybe... NATO expansion into a global role was not a good thing. Perhaps we should be looking at European security and cooperation as being the basis for the future. And for an early part of the 1990s, that indeed was the case. And then more hawkish elements took over and NATO went then into expansion. And that in turn, expansion was mirrored by greater militarism in Russia. Has Vladimir Putin and the people around him changed? I don't know. They probably have. They've probably become more hawkish. He certainly has become much more hawkish. Could things have been changed historically? It's a bit like watching um, a rerun of the build-up towards World War I, 
when a series of military alliances grew and those military alliances ended up with that massive conflict which killed millions and millions of people. So we always have to look historically as well as at the presence of what's going on. I wonder, does Jeremy Corbyn know that he sounds like one of those annoying, smug, smarmy bastards who thinks he knows everything? But at the back of it all, he knows fuck all. I wonder, has that ever occurred to Corbyn? How annoying he sounds, how smug he sounds. Do you remember, well you won't remember, why would you remember? It's not, none of your business really. But when he was elected leader of the Labour Party, I lost a lot of listeners, a lot at the time. You're talking a very significant number of listeners. People who had listened to me over the years, knowing of my socialist past, my trade unionist past, and believing that I would have been very sympathetic with Jeremy Corbyn. And then he won the Labour leadership contest back in 20... When was it? 2016? When, when, when he won it, was it? Or 2015? I think 2016, was it? And I didn't endorse it, or endorse him, rather. Well, why would I, knowing what it is that I know? That you know, right? Or they went batshit crazy. The hate mail was hilarious. And genuinely thousands of listeners dropped off. Now, we've done a lot better since. But they were staggered that I wouldn't endorse him. Despite the fact that everything I said that Corbyn would do, he did it to the letter. Basically, he wouldn't do anything. Remember him. Remember Corbyn as a Labour leader. Remember before the first general election he lost, or was it the second one? He sat on a live BBC broadcast with Andrew Neil. Live now. It was a live debate. Not a debate. It was a live interview. There was no delay. I know this to be true. None. And he sat there and mumbled while Andrew Neil, Andrew Neil, gatekeeper extraordinaire, accused Corbyn of basically being an anti-Semitic hater of Jews. And Corbyn just sat there instead of wiping the floor with Neil. Yeah, Jeremy Corbyn, eh? Anyway, it's 23 minutes to the top of the hour. Much more to come on the programme. Uh, Garudo Colmon joins me shortly, but I've got plenty more news for you after this from Depeche Mode. It's Depeche Mode. I know. You're listening to Your Richie Allen Show on richieallen.co.uk. That is Depeche Mode and enjoy the silence. 1990, 32 years ago. On the Richie Allen Show, which is live from Salford, it is the world's most listened to independent news radio show. Thank you for joining me. And, and I say it often enough, but maybe not too often enough, thank you so much for supporting it. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. This is very serious and it should be shared with uh, as many people as you can. It is very serious. We don't do the dramatisations here. But um, according to multiple news sources... Health officials are looking at a glut, that's glut, of unexplained cases of hepatitis in children in the 
US and in Europe, including some cases here in the UK. Last week, UK health authorities, according to the BBC, said they had detected higher than usual cases of the infection among children. And tellingly, the cause of the infections isn't yet known. It isn't known why, how children are coming down with hepatitis. Why? Well, because the viruses which normally cause uh, hepatitis infections have not been detected amongst the cases. Think about that. Kids have got hepatitis, right? Yeah. So you've seen the viruses then in the kids' blood samples that normally cause hepatitis. No, no, we haven't. Why are they getting hepatitis then? Uh, we don't know. But but we do know it has got nothing to do with the vaccines. It's got nothing to do with the vaccines. Do you hear me? How do you know it's got nothing to do with the vaccines? Have you done any tests, toxicology or otherwise, pathology? Have you looked into the children? Have you run lots and lots and lots of tests? You haven't, no? Okay, but you're certain it's not the vaccines, right? Yes? Yeah. Why are you certain it's not the vaccines? You're not going to tell me. No, it's just not the vaccines. Right, OK. Um, do I know it's the vaccines? That's me, the baldy gammon and so on. No, of course I don't. I would be irresponsible. But why take a chance? And this is information that should be shared with every parent in this country and everywhere else that is actually considering submitting their child for one of these toxic jabs. You'd have to be out of your mind to, to bring a child to a javatoir and say, yeah, go ahead there, why not? First of all, even if the jabs were okay and did the job they're supposed to do, which they don't, but let's pretend for a minute they do, your child doesn't need it anyway. Because COVID, whatever it is or was, doesn't touch children at all. So forget about it. No need for it. Need to know this, people. They need to know it. Amazing, isn't it? The UK Health Security Agency. Hey, I love that. I've said this a thousand times. How dystopian that is. What bullshit that is. You know the implications for that, for the future, that they have been allowed to create something called the Health Security Agency. Do you know what the implications are in the future? Well, the implications are that more and more power will be given to the UK Health Security Agency to determine what people can and cannot do in the interests of, you've guessed it, health security. Dystopian diabolical bollocks, isn't it? Oh yes, it is. Yes, the UK Health Security Agency said, well, we've not detected the normal infectious viruses that cause hepatitis, but again, it's not the vaccines. It just isn't. There's, there's no evidence. Share it far and wide. That's hugely important. There's still time, you know. From what I understand anyway, and this is anecdotal, I've got to put my hands... Up, if you can picture it, my hands are up now as I speak with you. This is purely anecdotal. But my understanding is, at least around Salford anyway, people I've bumped into, they're not bringing their children to have these jabs. Thank God, if that's true. But that's anecdotal. I don't know. What else have I got for you? The time is quarter to six o'clock. Um, I mean, you know they've robbed Roman Abramovich... Now, not because I'm jealous, but I've never had much time for multi-billionaires. Never. 
I've never had, I've never known many. I met Mark Rich one time. He's dead now. Remember Mark Rich? Jesus. An Irishman introduced me to him in Marbella. Jesus. Mark Rich, eh? What a character. Now, he had billions. But it was only a brief meeting. I didn't um, get much of a sense of the man. Mark Rich. Bit of a diabolical dude, apparently. Anywho, I don't have any time for, for billionaires. I'm sure to get to be a billionaire, you've got to cut a few throats along the way and bury a few bodies. I have no doubt. But Roman Abramovich has got nothing to do with what Russia has done in Ukraine. Nothing to do with it. Nothing. He hasn't supported it, either morally or materially. He's provided no money for weapons. He's not um, gone on Twitter and said, death to Ukraine. He's minded his own business, and yet they've frozen all of his assets. They've taken millions, if not hundreds, if not billions, of his assets and frozen them, not just um, Roman Abramovich, but other so-called Russian oligarchs. And today, well, there was news, there was sporting news around Ukraine, and it's to do with the Wimbledon tennis tournament. Here is the BBC, well, a BBC presenter. Now, Wimbledon is banning, has banned Russian and Belarusian tennis players from this summer's tournament because of the war in Ukraine. Our sports correspondent, Joe Wilson, has more. Wimbledon may bask in tradition, but it's part of today's world and all the sporting implications of the invasion of Ukraine. And Wimbledon is taking a stand. So, while Russia's Daniel Medvedev has been allowed to compete on the tour as an individual, the world number two will be barred from Wimbledon. The same applies to Irina Sabalenka of Belarus, ranked four in the women's game. Those are two potential champions. There are many other players who will also now be missing. From one of Ukraine's most prominent recent tennis players, this reaction. Alex Dolgopolov says a big thank you to Wimbledon and UK for stepping up and showing the world an example. What needs to be done to stop this madness? What? Alex Dolgopolov, is that his name? Ukrainian tennis player, says this is what needs to be done to stop the madness? Really? Let's ban Russian and Belarusian or Belarusian fucking tennis players and that will stop the madness in Ukraine? I wouldn't mind, but Daniil Medvedev has gone on the record and said he's a pacifist. He doesn't support war. It's got nothing to do with him, but he's banned. You see the precedent they're set setting here? Not just for famous tennis players and, and for billionaire oligarchs, but for everybody else. Just by being somehow associated with something... You could be fined or banned or exiled too. You might have nothing to do with whatever you are being associated with, just some passing association. It could be you were born somewhere, in the case of the Russian oligarchs, the wrong place to be born, and the tennis players. Or it could be that you you, you were a school, I don't know, a, a, a schoolboy chum, or schoolgirl pal of somebody who's deemed to have done something. It could be because you spent some time with somebody who's deemed to have done something which is unpalatable and you could find yourself sanctioned as well. This is what they're doing. They're getting away with it. It's 11 minutes to the top of the hour. Louise came on to say on the website, health security 
health authorities. No more health services, says Louise. Gaz says it's a new COVID variant, like sudden death. He's referring to hepatitis. That is your opinion, Gaz. You don't know that, but you might be right. It might very well be a, a reaction to to uh, to a jab. You're absolutely right. It might be, but uh, it might not be either. Craig says Corbyn's PR team uh, did a great job of presenting him as some kind of slightly rebellious, slightly scruffy teacher type, which just goes to show how easy it is to fool people. Uh, And William, thank you for your kind message there. I appreciate that. Christopher says, Richie, I see T-shirts imagery all around in Madrid with satanic teams. I think you mean themes. I see T-shirts bearing imagery in Madrid, imagery of satanic themes, as if it's a new trend. And, And I hear so many people blaming themselves for climate change and absolutely everything under the sun. False prophets are two a penny over here in Spain. Some hopeless ones worship the face nappy, says Christopher. Joan says, Richie, I'm all for different subjects to be discussed other than feckin' COVID. Bring it on. Satanists run holly weird, says Joan, and all of the entertainment industry. Basically, unless you sell your soul to the devil, you won't become famous, alleges Joan. Big bloody rabbit hole for sure. Go down that one with us. You might remember me interviewing Isaac Cappy. I'll say no more on that particular subject. Monk alleges... And we have no reason to doubt Monk that he, or she, I think it's he, worked with Johnny Depp on a movie uh, at one time. Monk says they had a guy looking after Johnny, steering him away from any temptation of those expensive bottles. He walked around mumbling and hugging all the other talent. I can honestly say he didn't impress most of us working on that picture, says Monk, you're very old-fashioned, calling it a picture, indeed. Richard says, Richie, we could do with a cooking hour to change from COVID. I'll get the uh, oft-mentioned El Frago, the future missus, to do a a radio cookery show. I don't know how that will work. It'll be very funny, though. I can guarantee you that much. You will laugh. Jack says that Julian Assange told the Belfast Telegraph in 2010, quote, I'm constantly annoyed that people are distracted by false conspiracies such as 9-11. Yeah. And then Paul says, yes, he was 100% controlled opposition, says Paul. He might have been, Paul. But then again, he mightn't have been. People who exist in the realm of, of independent media and consuming it, it's a dangerous thing to constantly think that when somebody doesn't see an issue as you see it, it must mean they are controlled opposition. No, it doesn't. It might just mean that Julian Assange actually believes that September the 11th was an attack on America by Islamic fundamentalists. I don't believe it was. You don't believe it was. But maybe Julian Assange saw it like that. Or maybe you're right. Maybe he was controlled. Please use it could be argued. 
please do me a favour. I've been doing this fucking radio show for eight years. I really have. I'm strongly thinking about jacking the fucking thing in. I've had it up to me tonsils, talking about this shit year in, year out, week in, week out, particularly over the last two years. So when you offer an opinion about somebody being controlled opposition, just consider, just for me, just for a minute, putting the prefix, it could be fucking argued. How about that? Okay. And breathe. I'm joking, by the way. I am actually joking. Don't take me too seriously. Today. And Tom says it would be a dream if we could get a phone call into LBC, from from myself, uh, into James O'Brien and have a go at him. Please do this one day. Tom, there wouldn't be any point in it. And I would be demeaning this programme by phoning another radio station to have a pop with somebody like James O'Brien. First of all, let's get one thing clear. Globally, the Richie Allen Show, globally, not, not, in, not in the UK now, but we all exist globally, we all have podcasts, um, the Richie Allen Show has far more listeners than James O'Brien could ever dream of. So James O'Brien should be thinking about ringing this programme to have a go at me. So, so we'll leave that one there, he says, with a, with a big old head on him. But um, they've got things like delay. They've got audio delay. They've got broadcast delay systems for the eventuality that somebody rings in and says something they don't like, something they really don't like, they can dump it out and it doesn't get broadcast. They've usually got 10 or 15 second delays. And uh, that's a clever thing when you're a national radio station because your biggest concern is that somebody will come on the air and libel somebody, make a claim about somebody which is grossly untrue, which could lead to the station being sued for allowing it to be broadcast. So they have delay systems in place. Even if I was interested in doing that, it wouldn't um, get on, it wouldn't get out anyway. So there you go. It's uh, five minutes to the top of the hour. And this one piqued my interest today as well. We talk a lot about censorship. We talk a lot about self-censorship on this programme. I believe self-censorship to be the most insidious form of censorship. And it is everywhere now. We have been conditioned. I don't mean you. I don't mean me. I mean the human race. We have been conditioned now to be terrified of the consequences of expressing our genuine opinions on things, on anything. On any subject, we have been conditioned, not you again, not me, but maybe don't say that. Or maybe dilute what it is that you really want to say, dilute it down so bloody much that it becomes incomprehensible anyway. And then you won't get into trouble. Um, the comedian, who I, I should have looked it up really, but I... I had quite a bit to do today. I think he might be Iranian. Is it Omid Jalili? Is he Iranian? Is he from Beirut? You remind me, I can't remember. I believe he's pretty talented. It's been a long time now since I saw him on television. That's because I don't watch evening television. I'm sure he's on all the time. But he's a comic and he did the BBC Hard Talk programme presented by Stephen Secour. And he was asked by Stephen Secour about comedians and how...
comedians are navigating the cancel culture universe. Let me play a little bit of this for you. I think it's very interesting and I also think it's quite sad too. Certainly in comedy, authenticity is the most important thing. And that's what I, when I watch comedy, that when I see a comedian being authentic, that's when I laugh the most. So I think that comedy is not just about... For, for me, the funny is never the end. You, see, you use funny to make a point. So now that I'm in my mid-50s, I'm using comedy to make, to make a point. So that is authentically me. And the more authentic you can be, the more powerful the comedy is. Can you be authentic? Can you be your genuine funny self in a culture today, which some comedians say is so full of sort of correctness, of wokery, of even cancel culture, as yes. they put it, that to quote Bill Mayer, the American late night comedian, there is a war on jokes. Yeah. Do you think there's a war on jokes? A little bit, yes, but also uh, I, I think if, if a comedian is clever, they can navigate it in a way. I mean, I'll, t I'll give you an example, Stephen. I, I, coming from the comedy clubs where it was very bang, 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 you've got like 10 seconds to make someone laugh. I remember being in a comedy club and they weren't laughing and the guy goes, you know, give me a chance. The people say, you're not funny, get off. He goes, give me a chance. I'm actually schizophrenic. And went, you, you, you can both get off, you know. So people are really quick. So you're, you're, the way the comedy is, is, is built for short bits and that is where you can get into trouble because if you just go for the gag, you may get into trouble. So now in my concert pieces, I have never done more setup in my life because sometimes you need set up and then oh, I better say this before they cancel me I you better say this there's more exp explanation not so not so much um, you know not so much stuff that's going to take away from the gag you can do it this is Munch's scream stuff listening to him I'm picturing Munch's scream picture the scream here you have a comic telling a television presenter, and he's telling the truth, by the way, that he is having to edit his stand-up as he goes along to explain to people that he's not really a bastard. You know, I'm not really a bastard. This is just a joke, like. And by doing that, he's actually shortening his, his, his schedule of jokes, his routine. 200 laughs, now it's 150. I've got to tell them because I'll be cancelled if I don't. <laughs> oh, God. I wonder what would have happened if COVID hadn't have happened and my live show would have went ahead because I was at the stage of booking venues. Honestly, I was booking venues when this kicked off. Theatres around the northwest and around the northeast where I was going to do a two-hour basically to our stand-up, audio-visual, taking, basically taking the piss out of the evolution of the media, the broadcast media in the UK. And some of the stuff I was going to be saying, mother of God-like, but um, when you don't have any fear of being sacked, which I don't, and I'm the first one to admit that, by the way, you know, it is a kind of a privileged position. Clever people sometimes ask me, now, you're a tough guy, Bali. Would you be so tough if you were employed by someone? And I can't, I can't answer that. We all would like to think, well, yeah, you know, I'd still say that which I, you know, would prefer to say. I'm not going to be 
forced into accepting that a bloke with a big hairy penis is in fact a woman. You know, I, I like to think even if I'm working for someone and then they say, yeah, but if you have bills and all that. Yeah, yeah, look, I understand that. But um, no, I stand by the answer I've given. It's it. Yes, it is privileged to be on your lonesome. But at the same time, I like to think that even if I was employed, if it was in an Amazon warehouse, if it was in a McDonald's, God forbid, um, I would say that which I felt like saying. That's what I believe, Anywho. Garrodo Colmon is standing by to talk to you and to me. Annie Lennox walking on broken glass, five minutes past six, the Richie Allen Show, live from BBG Towers in Salford. Uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of comments. Go to richieallen.co.uk, comment live, read the comments there and interact with others while you're doing so. A lot of excitement about Garode coming back on the programme after an absence of some time. Um, it's like a bus, isn't it? It's like buses. You wait for ages and then you get him twice in, uh, in in short order. I'm delighted he's back on the programme. He's a terrific Irishman based in Paris. He's a journalist and broadcaster and writes, uh, well, he writes for everybody. Lately doing a lot of excellent work for al Mayadeen or al Mayadeen English. I will, of course, put links up if you don't know, but I will put links up in any case. He's incredibly well positioned to talk about this coming Sunday, the French presidential election is important. Let's welcome him back to the show. It's uh, the one and only, our friend Garodo Colmon. Dear great Garod, welcome back. Dear great Garod, Yeah, it's great to be back. Thanks for uh, getting me on. A lot of things happening here. Um, obviously, the election is come. The second round of the election is on on, on Sunday. Um, the you know the chances of a change, I think, are slim. Um, if if the polls are anything to go by, usually they're not. But the only thing we have, uh, Marine Le Pen is about uh, it's about 55, 45 or something like that now. Um, so you, you, Macron seem, obviously has the entire weight of the military industrial media complex here behind him. Uh, he's creation of that complex, um, and uh, you know they absolutely need him for the Great Reset. Here in France and in Europe for the European Union, he's the key man in the European Union, really. And so uh, I think the entire Great Reset project would collapse if if uh, they didn't have Macron. Having said that, Le Pen has generally been a weak candidate. Uh, in 2017, she had golden opportunity of winning, and she didn't take it. She co- completely collapsed in the television debate, and uh, and and lost. And now she has done better. But uh, there are lots of questions about the first round of this election. For example, uh, many people weren't able to vote. A lot of um, a lot of people basically wiped off the electoral list. A huge amount, in fact, hundreds of thousands all over France. Um, the media were saying there was huge abstention, but in many places there were uh, huge queues, and that the people noticed that that the media reporting didn't seem to reflect the participation. So and then Macron got 27%, which is higher than the last time. And so that's sort of suspicious because the of incumbent. his record, yeah. which is catastrophic. And the incumbent you know? doesn't normally do so well, not, not in the first round. Can you explain to our listeners why the French don't just have a day? Let's have the bloody election and get it over with one Thursday in April. Why this system of two and three rounds? 
Well, I think in, 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 in France for many years, you've had, you know, coalition governments. So you had a coalition government in, in, in the 1980s with uh, uh, Mitterrand. And then you had, uh, you know, it, basically politics has been very, very divided. And there's been there's nothing like anything like a majority. I mean, if you look at this election, you had uh, Mélenchon, who arrived in third place, could have Mélenchon's a left wing candidate. He could have beaten uh, Marine Le Pen uh, for second place, um, which would have been an ideal situation, I think, for the oligarchy, because Mélenchon has always been a, a you know a, a one of the preferred oppositions for the oligarchy because he's a, he's part of the same lodge. As uh, Emmanuel Macron, he's essentially uh, a member of the uh, Grand Orient de France, the uh, the Grand Orient of France, uh, and uh, he he's part of the same club as as Macron. So he's there as a sort of a, a a second plan, or he's sort of he's he's his main role is to get the immigration vote and to uh, to back up Macron if uh, Le Pen ha- you know starts to get higher votes. In spite of the fraud I just mentioned, now Mac, now Mélenchon uh, has been in the background for a long time. He comes from the PS, the Parti Socialiste, which has kind of collapsed, and so he created this new movement called France Unbowed, France Insoumise, which is essentially a Trotsky, a rehash of Trotskyism plus a bit of ecology plus immigrationism. And so he uh, he got a huge section of the French, uh, the immigrant population. Uh, and uh, that's how he managed to increase his vote this time. So um, right after that, then of course he he asked to uh, to uh, his followers to vote for Macron. So that's the left wing opposition. What you're seeing is essentially an alliance, a very clear alliance, and o- openly and publicly now between the left and finan- the financial oligarchy, where the left are, are are you know asking the working class essentially to vote for the financial oligarchy. Against any possible alternative, um, the left, the, the 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 working class vote is going to Marine Le Pen generally. As I said, Marine Le Pen had to form a new party in order to sort of separate herself from the politics of her father, which was, uh, I guess, uh, less capable of getting an overall, you know, sort of seducing other asp- other people who normally voted centre right. And so she tried to sort of occupy that position of the centre right. Uh, by uh, creating a new party called Rassemblement National, this sort of more inclusive sounding, toning down the uh, rhetoric. Uh, then you had uh, Zemmour, who's a, I mentioned last time, I think, a Tunisian Jew who basically uh, didn't do very well in the end. Um, but uh, in a way, he may actually help uh, Le Pen because he had a sort of extreme sounding position, very anti-Islam, you know, very, uh, very misogynistic, over, I mean, really uh, misogynistic kind of stuff. So it kind of makes Marine Le Pen, obviously she's not a misogynist, but it makes Marine Le Pen look a lot more plausible and... Um, a lot more palatable. Sort of and, and tell so, me, girls. So there's a lot of marketing. I mean, an example of this, for example, is that, you know, Le Pen was supported by Russia to a certain extent for a long time. Um, you know, Russians would prefer Le Pen because Le Pen's politics is more uh, anti-NATO, and it's, uh, you know, um, she's more pro-Putin. But in the Ukrainian war, because it happened before the election, Le Pen, you know, has just joined the 
the him against against Putin. Right, right. And so, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's it's ridiculous. It's pathetic. But she obviously, obviously, her advisor said, "There's no way you can do this. Like, if you if you're pro Putin, uh, you know, you're just going to. There's no way you're going to get elected." So she had to come out in favor of. Uh, of NATO to a certain extent. But, but doesn't it say, uh, or doesn't, doesn't it suggest, well, it does to me, you tell me if I'm wrong, that while there are those, and I wouldn't necessarily number you amongst them, but there might be those who think, right, Marine Le Pen, that, you know, that surprise, if she was to win, would um, put a halt to the gallop of the World Economic Forum, the, the Great Reset. But in reality... What might be more likely to happen is that the status quo is maintained. These people always disappoint. I've only got to yeah. speak to Donald Trump, don't I? Now, why never yeah. support it? The, ultimately, they, they, they don't do anything. Is that how you would see it? Like if Le Pen got in, you, you might have great celebration, fantastic. We've got something a bit different, but it might not mean anything more than a hill of beans. Yeah, I mean, I think that people, I, I think that, you know, I'm not voting because I'm not French, so I, I'm not I'm speaking from the outside. But, you know, if I were voting, I, or if I, if I could, then I probably would. You know, it's a question, do you want to participate in this game or not? So you can either say, yeah. like, just don't participate in this. I think in the long term, you know, that's the way to go. And since we need to const- we need to construct an alternative to the system. And that needs to be sort of on a local level. You know, that's kind of in a civilizational project, if you like. That's something we should be thinking about more than who we're going to vote for next. We should be. But if, you know, if you're looking at this bite in this fight, you know, there's two cocks in the ring. And which one am I going to back? Um, or will I even participate? Then I would probably obviously kind of got no choice but to vote Le Pen because if you're against the Great Reset, she's at least said that she will scrap the uh, vaccine pass. Yeah. So I think that if she, you know, I think they have things summed up to a certain extent. Obviously, her side as well. Um, they were very poor on the whole vaccine thing. I mean, they didn't uh, they didn't oppose the vaccine pass at all. They said they did, but they didn't really do much, you know, and so they played very kind of dirty politics um, during the uh, the lockdown. Uh, I mean, she could have won with a landslide if she had come out during the lockdown and said, look, this is all a scam. I'm going to restore liberty. You know, that's not really what Le Pen is playing. She's playing politics. And right. it's, it's cynical. You know, but having said that, she is against the vaccine pass. So, you know, what kind of choice do you have? Uh, I would still be happier if she won because of that in particular. Because if the vaccine pass is scrapped, it's going to be harder to um, to reintroduce it or to do something else. You I know? think you're right, uh, Gerard. I think you're right. Gerard O'Colmon is our guest, by the way, journalist, writer, broadcaster. I think you're right. I think anybody coming out and telling the truth about the fact that COVID was a scam, there was no pandemic, whatever about COVID might might have existed, but but there was never a pandemic. And it's 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 an assault on liberty and freedom. I think, yeah, potential landslide. But I also think, and I don't mean to be flippant at all or, or silly or sensationalist, I also think before they even got to say that on national television, they'd probably be murdered, probably. Yeah, well, it would take it would take someone you know courageous. Yeah, um, so, I mean, Marie Le Pen doesn't have much charisma anyway. I mean, she's really sort of made a career of being the daughter of Jean Marie Le Pen, yeah. who had more charisma, but uh, was nonetheless a loser. I mean, he never got into power, and he had a chance as well. And there was always a suspicion, and there still is a suspicion in France that the entire Le Pen phenomenon was sort of um, was a bit of a fraud from the beginning. That it was always a sort of a controlled opposition that was just there to sort of. Uh, 
get you know the right wing voters yeah. and sort of go nowhere you know even there was you know a theory that it was sort of made to prop up the left because it was sort of like the threat of fascism was there and that sort of kept the left going for a long time i mean both sides play off this whole thing um this sort of you know like the supporters of Mélenchon are really ridiculous i mean it's, it's he's He's depending a lot on the immigrant community or just voting for immigrant issues because basically that's that's you know that's all he's built up his party on and then of course the um, the ecology uh, fanaticism is another driving force of uh, of the left um, you know Le Pen tonight will be in debate with Macron so a lot of will depend maybe on her performance tonight, will she be able to do something more intelligent than the last time? You said she so was abysmal. Needs, in, yes. in 2017, you said she was abysmal. I do remember readings at, at the time. Garud, I'm looking, I'm looking at the clock. We've got probably 35 minutes from here. There's so much I want to ask you, and I want to get out of your way. I'd love to get into what's happening in Ukraine, and we'll do that in a minute. But you teased me with a message you sent me just before we came on air, and I'm fascinated by it. And it's about the origins of Emmanuel Macron, the current French president, the incumbent, and his relationship with his wife, Brigitte, I think her name is Macron, who was a teacher. And I remember reading some years ago, not by, you know, Uncle Albert and and Auntie Daisy on Facebook with their silly theories, but genuine news articles suggesting that there's a strong possibility or that there's there, there's a story there whereby this guy Macron might have been groomed by this woman he's married with and that he might have been underage when their relationship began and that there might be a lot more to that. But what do you think about that? I know you, you mentioned it briefly uh, to me in yeah, a message. There's certainly, there, uh, look, there's a, there's a huge story here. Um, in to make this, this is a huge story. I mean, it's probably, it's the story of the century really. Um, I, it's but to start, you mentioned you know their relationship. First of all, he was fourteen, so he was technically a child. Uh, so it's technically a paedophile relationship. And don't take that from me. Take it from the International Paedophile and Child Emancipation Network. That's the official uh, lobbying group for paedophilia in the world. They uh, cite Macron and Bridget as an example of what they want. So. You know that's that's what they believe. They, they they're the lobbyists for paedophilia, and they believe that it's a paedophilia relationship, and and that's why people should accept it, and so Jesus. on and so forth. So um, th- there's no question about that. Technically, this is a, a paedophile situation. Uh, he was 14; she was probably 45. Now she's older. Well, she. This will come to that in a moment. She, he. <laughs> You're kidding me. This gets, this gets a bit complicated. Go on. She, let's say she for the start. She's 45. She was, I think, 45 years older. So she was um, a lot older than the official story. So they had to, the media here had to change um, the, the the ages uh, of this story. Now let's just get to the network here behind these two people first, just to give kind of paint the picture. Um, both of them essentially come out of the paedophile world, the underworld here. They come from the LGBTQP uh, underworld. Uh, Macron was pretty much elected by many people who are convicted paedophiles. So, for example, uh, the uh, one of the key people in getting him elected was a guy called Jean-Marc Borello. And he worked in he worked closely with uh, Robert uh, Megel who ran a child trafficking ring and was condemned in 2006. 
Um, the woman who ran the media campaign for Macron used to uh, basically run brothels and uh, LGBT clubs and uh, was condemned as well, came in, was in and out of prison many times for different crimes, drugs, fraud, all kinds of stuff. Um, then you have just the entourage, you have the think tanks basically that uh, got him elected. Uh, Christophe Bejash uh, was a major uh, figure there, also condemned for paedophilia. Um, uh, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, a European deputy of the Green Party, close uh, close friend of the uh, Macron uh, couple, um, has openly spoken about his paedophilia. He hasn't even he hasn't even hidden it. There's he's on uh, his interviews from the 1960s talking about it. He writes about it in his book, and you know he generally has a difficult time if he goes to any. Organize, if he goes to any conference that's not organized by his friends, uh, he gets, you know, he gets chased out of the uh, out of the room by people who know this. But he's, it's never brought up by the media. He's still presenting, you know, on, he's still welcome in the media and uh, considered a respectable politician. He's the leader of the Green Party in Germany. Um, uh, you have uh, basically the entire. Now I wrote about this a few years ago. The entire entourage of Macron have links to paedophilia. Some actually have been accused publicly by prominent uh, writers and politicians here of murder. One, for example, Jacques Long, who is the head of the Arab Institute, uh, the Institut de Mondeharab, which is the main, the huge cultural institute of the Arab world here in Paris. He's the director of that institute. Now, he was publicly accused by a famous French writer called Roger Hollande uh, of having uh, murdered a child, having raped a child to death. Uh, and um, Jacques Long is a very rich man. And uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't uh, file for uh, defamation. He didn't respond to it. This was a public accusation. In fact, Hollande said that Long should have been hanged on the street. That's what he said that should happen to this man, that he should be hanged in the street. So, you know, this is, these are the kind of accusations no that were made publicly by prominent people. Uh, Long never... Um, denied the accusations. And it's kind of well known that he's involved in these. He goes to Morocco regularly. Uh, another prominent politician spoke about that on television uh, a few years ago. And most of this is pretty much out there. And yet, you know, nobody's allowed to talk about it. So that's the network, if you like, that got Macron elected. And that network is li linked to Epstein. It's linked to Gillian Maxwell. We'll come to her in a moment. It's linked to that entire global pedophile network um can i just say before can i just say before you move on um my listeners will expect me to be looking this stuff up as you're saying it and to look for some evidence of it um to subsequently challenge you with it and kick yep. you off the air if you're libeling someone or lying but you're not i've, I've i wouldn't expect you to anyway but a I've, very good but, source on this. Most of the obviously. I'm looking it up. I've got it here. Are... Yeah, I've got it here in front of me. Uh, Jürgen yeah. Tritton. I've got it here, signing off on um, the idea that sex between adults and children is good and is okay in some cases. The German Greens. What you're telling me is absolutely true, and that these people would be around the the Macrons. Listeners to this program won't be surprised by any of this, but they're listening with all ears. But I've I've looked into. I mean, look, what, there's only so much you can do online, Garod, but I've looked for any connection between all of the big European leaders and Epstein, and I can't find even so much as a meeting between... Connection is French, because 
<laughs> this is this is the French connection because um, Epstein had property. He has property or had if he's still alive, who knows? Um, in in Paris and uh, Gillian Maxwell. Now researchers here. My a lot of my research that I have in front of me here is from uh, Fait et Document, which is in French, uh, by um, which is a a, 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 mag, a investigative journalism magazine, excellent magazine. Uh, by um, Eric Poussard, and you know he's probably the best researcher in France, probably the best journalist, I think. Um, and uh, you know this is uh, so. If anyone wants to research that, if it reads French, this you get all the information there. It's very very detailed. So I'm breaking down a lot of this stuff for you. Um, Gillian Maxwell uh, is a French speaker. Her mother uh, was a French speaker. I think I think she's French. Um, her father, Robert Maxwell, was uh, basically given huge uh, shares in a major uh, television company here, TF1. Uh, by he was invited to well, his connection in France was Jacques Attali. You know, you probably heard your viewers might have heard of Jacques Attali, who's a major figure in the oligarchy here, the most probably the most powerful oligarch in France. He uh, was the advisor of several French presidents, the kingmaker, really, of several French presidents. He's been around for many years, and he is the man who essentially created Emmanuel Macron, and that's what he admitted himself, that he was essentially, uh, Macron was a creation of Jacques Attali. Came out of nowhere, didn't he? Came out of nowhere, Macron. I remember this. I remember speaking to you about this some years ago. He came from the Rothschild Bank. He was a banker with the Rothschilds, that's right, yeah. It was uh, Jacques Attali who is, as I say, one of these permanent... A bit, he's kind of the uh, Henry Kissinger of France, if you like. Right. Uh, member of B'nai B'rith, you know, super elite. Um, he introduced... He got Robert Maxwell uh, implanted in France. Uh, and um, Gillian Maxwell is believed by many researchers here to be in France. They suspect that she never left France, that she's being protected by people here because there have been no photos. I don't know if there, ha- uh, if you have any information on that, but there hasn't been, there haven't been any photos of her in prison, of her trial in the United States. Well, as far as I know, artists, ar- yeah, artists' renderings, the usual that you get sometimes yeah. from trials, yeah. But but outside of so that, so again, there's yeah. a suspicion that she may actually be still in France, and so. Um, why not kill know, her? Just, I mean, why, why, I, I don't understand that. Why Why wouldn't she just be murdered? She's small potatoes, really, Ghislaine, isn't she? Sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, we simply don't know about her, but she does have a lot of property here. Um, she is a French speaker. So she, you know, the, the France, I think, was an important um, center, an important base for Epstein uh, and for all of them. You know, they, I mean, what millionaire, what billionaire does not have an apartment in Paris, you know? They all have apartments in these big capitals, London, Paris, New York, you know. That's right. So they, 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 there's a kind of a triangle there of those three cities. And uh, Paris is a key player in all of this. Um, so just sort of to kind of come back to the Macron couple, um, who is Brigitte? That's the big question. Um, now, not, a, not a man, uh, surely. Not a man, surely. Well, I, I'm quoting Xavier Poussard here because... Fair document brought out a, 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 a uh, an explosive um, study of the Macrons uh, a few months ago, which created a major, you know, it created a huge interest uh, in France. I think it was probably the uh, issue of their magazine that they most sold in, in their history. Um, it was something that, you know, kind of 
shocked a lot of people. I, I didn't expect it myself. I knew that there was something obviously very criminal about this whole thing. But um, yeah, there's a suspicion about Brigitte Macron about who she actually is. The big problem um, with Brigitte Macron is that there is no photo of, of her um, from the 1980s on. So uh, her past life, um, where she was apparently married and had children, uh, is just non-existent. Now, mainstream researchers here in the mainstream media have admitted that. So they just haven't gone any further. They just said that you cannot, you're not allowed to research her life. And any time that they tried to research her life, her previous life before she met Macron, they, they basically uh, had hostility and there was just nothing. So there's no picture of her with children, with small children. There's no picture of her, you know, there's no picture of a marriage to her previous husband. There's nothing about her previous life. Now, um, that interest, interested a few researchers here, and they started researching uh, a woman online called um, uh, Natasha Ray uh, had a Facebook page, and she was kind of um, researching this. She did an, an awful lot of research. She's not uh, part of uh, Poussard's uh, publication, but they did cite some of her work. Now, Poussard kind of put a lot of this together in his magazine, and he came to the conclusion that Brigitte Macron's real name is Jean-Michel Pruneau. Uh, she's a he. Jean-Michel Pruneau. Wow. Right. Uh, and uh, from the rich uh, Pruneau family. And um, that essentially she's a man. She's a transsexual. Um, now, since then, there's been a lot of information, a lot of photos have been published of Jean-Michel Pruneau when he was younger. And uh, in my opinion, I mean, they've even done uh, quite a lot of forensic examination of photographs, and uh, they all match. I mean, this is definitely the same person. And you've looked there's at these now. I, I ask you this because I, listen, let's leave the compliments to, to one side and all of that buttering up bullshit. Let's leave it to one side. I like you because you're an old school journalist and you don't stand for bullshit. So I, I trust that what you tell me is what you actually believe. Are you telling me, my friend, that you've looked at these pictures and you think there's enough to warrant further investigation? There's no question that the, the, the thesis that uh, Brigitte Macron was originally a man is plausible in my mind, because if they, for example, just to come to the pictures, we have pictures of, of Jean-Michel, if, again, this is the, let's say, the real name of Brigitte, if, if, that's, if this theory is true. Uh, Jean-Michel Trunot, we have pictures of him at a gay pride, one of the first gay pride uh, marches in France in the 1980s. Uh, clearly the same person, in my view. Um, we have pictures, we have actually videos of this man as a transvestite um, in a nightclub in the 1980s talking to an interviewer. Uh, again, the resemblance is just unmistakable. The voice is slightly different. But um, nonetheless, uh, she or he speaks with a kind of a lisp, and the lisp was there, a very recognizable lisp as well. Um, if this is true, it's mind blowing. There's a lot more this. out there. There's tons of, of evidence. Now, what about the, those? Hang on, hang on, Garod. What about those who would say, listen, we had this sort of stuff before with Michelle Obama, and that this might be people in positions of power basically trying to distract journalists, good journalists like yourself and not so good journalists, distract them from, you know, really getting to the end of the road and understanding where 
where, where, you know, where all of this is coming from, that they throw these kind of things out there to, you know, to, 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 to muddy the waters. Because I'm getting this now online. It's not that people are saying, oh, Garod is full of shite. They're not saying that. They're just saying this is uncannily like the, the claims made about Michelle Obama. Yeah, sure. Now, look, Michelle Obama is another case, but this is, um, I mean, in a, in a way, this is even more surprising than Michelle Obama because you know, Michelle Obama is quite masculine looking anyway, and you might kind of be suspicious just by looking at her, um, you know, she's, whereas Bridget Macron is quite well done, if it's true, you know, you're looking at, she's quite petite looking. I actually, I actually almost bumped into her in the street uh, about, about a year ago. Um, she was out cycling. With two bodyguards with her now from behind she's very kind of scrawny and weird looking but i didn't you know i didn't notice i wouldn't have thought that myself i wouldn't even have you know i, I would never have come up with this idea so whether this is, so you're saying is it you know that this could be disinformation put out there well i think if it if it if it were some sort of a counterintelligence operation to discredit conspiracy theorists or something like that then i think it would have been discredited it would have been easy enough to discredit yeah. because you know, this was uh, pretty much viral at this stage, and all they had to do is just release those basic pictures of her, of her childhood, you know, and just show, and then show how ridiculous all these researchers are. And I think that would have been, you know, that would have been the end of it. But they you haven't. Know? They haven't been able to do that, and, and the magazine I'm citing here have challenged the government to do that, challenged the Macron regime to release, uh, you know, the information to, to, to prove that, that they're they're wrong, uh, and they haven't been able to do to do that. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, problems with her past, um, and uh, yeah, for example, the one one like one of the things they show of her marriage is clearly not it's clearly not Bridget Macron. It's another woman. I mean, there's no way you could believe it's the same woman. So we have uh, now her, she does this person, whether it's a male or a female, has children, and that's clear. So the um, because, you know, there's a resemblance there. Uh, it's not doubted by anyone. She, I think she's three children. Now, now the um, hypothesis which Pusar advances here on this is that she she when she was a he had what, you know, fathered children uh, with a woman. That woman has been identified as well. Um, and then uh, he was a she uh, probably being involved in. Uh, she was a he, I'm getting confused now, that person who was probably involved in, you know, the pedophile networks, uh, you know, went, had a sex change or decided to uh, change uh, his identity and go full, full on trans. And so um, now we don't know if he had operation, an operation or not. So that that remains a mystery. Um there's no other explanation. Again, there's no proof. What I'm saying here is not, you know, it hasn't this been proven. This is a theory, yeah. The, this is a theory, and I think it's, I think it's, pl it's certainly plausible if they had produced the evidence of her previous life. They might say, you know, uh, it's so it fantastical. Possible. They might say, this is so ridiculous that we wouldn't dignify it by putting the information out. I, oh, I'm guessing course. that's yeah, what they I would mean, say. You know, the thing is, uh, you know, Brigitte Macron uh, rarely appears uh, in, in public. And most of the pictures you see of her in the media are all touched up. So this is another thing as well. Anytime that she appears in public, you know, the official pictures are touched up. And again, that's not denied. You know, that's pretty much been admitted and 
kind of debunked by journalists themselves. Can I, can I ask you this, Carol? Just, just, just before we, you think so? So you think again? There, there would be so many people who would need to be kind of in on it. I'm not saying now that that proves uh, that the theory is bunkum. I'm not saying that, um, but a lot of people would have to know and keep quiet. But, but again, I'm not rejecting it out of hand. It fascinates me. Stranger things have happened. Gerardo Colmon is our guest. Just before we talk about Ukraine, because look how quick the time flies. It just flies by. And I do want to spend about 15 minutes with you on Ukraine. Why would they take such massive risks, you know, with with, with scenarios like that? Isn't it easy well, I, to choose a, a president? I think, and, uh, I think the, only, the only explanation, the only possible explanation is that I think the system is held together by... Um, by uh, what's the word um, by threats and blackmail and I think blackmail is sort of the key is the glue that keeps the whole thing together you know what people know about other people yeah and I think Macron is very much a Manchurian candidate um, even again his whole family no, nothing is known about like very little is known about his family he does have an official father an official mother but there's a lot of doubts about them as well uh, in terms of whether they're actually his parents so even his past is very, very uh, strange. And so it seems to me that sort of Manchurian candidates who may, you know, this if this is true that Bridget Macron's real name is Jean-Michel Trudeau, then this is obviously a very powerful man. And this is the real president of France. This is the man who's running the show, not Macron. Not know? Macron. Um, and I think also there's another element here that wow. we're dealing with uh, a global elite that are extremely perverted. And I think... The uh, capacity to, you know, the, to to uh, dare something like that, and then to kind of completely destroy the natural family. So to, you know, it's a complete perversion of the natural family. You know, if Macron's wife is his husband or whatever. I mean, it's just all wrong. It's all back to front, literally. And so you're looking at a kind of a complete perversion. And I think that there's an element of mysticism there, you know, there's a sort of a Baphomet element to this. There's a mystical element to this, which is, uh, you know, to sort of humiliate the, po- the population as well. You know, like, obviously, if you, if, you, if you dare something that is so daring that people would never doubt, that's the ultimate power. You know, that you've dared something and you've managed yeah. to do something that people would never suspect you capable of doing. Like September that's the 11th, kind of where and, you have complete yeah. control over them. That's how I look you know? at. That's how I look at things like, particularly the seventh of July bombings in the UK, which I can say as a journalist, I know for a fact were were what uh, was a false flag operation. I, I'm not saying people didn't die in London, but I know for a fact. Um, that they dared to do that. We we don't even have to talk about Peter Power going on ITN News that night to say that course, there was a drill yeah. going on that same day, imagining the same scenario in the same train stations. Garod, that's I'd love to revisit that. That that's really really fascinating. Why they would do it? How they would imagine they would get away with it? Garodo Colmon is our guest, journalist, See, there's broadcaster. Stake, there's a lot at stake here because this is you know this is a small the oligarch is quite small globally. You know they all know each other. These people are interconnected, you know, part of the same networks. Like I just mentioned, the Epstein Maxwell. Yeah. You know, it's quite, and so like, I think a lot of it is based on blackmail, and uh, you know that kind of. You know, it's not again the the context I just described of the people who who voted for Macron, the people who are running the media here, the amount of pedophiles I mentioned, some of them known, some of them convicted, 
who are basically running his campaign. It, you know, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me at all that this that this could be true. It's a staggering thing to me, Garod. It's staggering to me to think that someone convicted of paedophilia would ever have any role to play in public life. That's the sort of thing you imagine if someone is convicted of of assaulting children, of raping children, they serve their sentence. What normally happens is, at least in civilised society, is that those people are never seen again. They basically hide away, they're monitored. That's what should happen. That's with ordinary people. But for some of these people to come back into public life, I mean, it's absolutely shocking. But look, I'm looking looking to try... Go on. They're trying to normalise this and they're trying to normalise it in the schools. So They are in schools, yeah. The purpose of, of this, you know. Did you see, you, you would have been aware of this, I played a clip of it. An Australian politician stood up in, in Parliament. I can't remember in which state. God forgive me for not remembering this because yeah, I, I talked saw about it. I, saw it. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. He had a letter from a parent who said that the, a, a child was supposed to go home as part of her homework and ask her father to talk about masturbation. Yeah, that's that. fucking yeah. sick. That look, it's um, night. It's it's not. It's nineteen minutes. We've got about eleven minutes left, so keep that in mind because we are live and I've got to be out of here by five to uh, at the top of the hour. But Ukraine, I'm going to kick off with this question for you. The European Union announced today that it's going to send another one point five billion euro worth of arms to Ukraine to defend itself against Russia. My question is, and it's a simple one, why are we not in the middle of World War Three? I think that the, you know, the part World War Three, we are in a way in World War Three, but it, it probably won't be, you know, it's not obviously going to be like a rerun of the Second World War, where, you know, someone like Churchill gets on, goes on the radio and says, you know, we're at war with Germany and, and makes, you know, those kind of speeches. And suddenly, you know, you've got massive troop deployments uh, it, this is this is fourth generation warfare, so it war works through media disinformation, uh, mercenaries, uh, non-conventional warfare, you know, uh, asymmetric warfare, all these new sort of um, uh, proxy wars that you know we've seen since Libya, Syria, and and now Ukraine. Um, so these wars b- basically are. You know, multifaceted, but they're not necessarily, you know, the same because of technology. Now they can sort of uh, they can wage war on all fronts. So I think what I see happening with Ukraine right now is obviously an escalation. I don't see the Russians, you know, dropping atomic bombs uh, on Europe in retaliation, unless they're completely forced, of course. Yeah. You know. uh, but I think they would maybe retaliate. But um, you know, what I see happening here is you've got uh, Ukraine obviously destroyed, destabilized, destroyed. You have the percolating problems associated with that, in particular the food crisis, the emerging food crisis. You know, I just wrote an article about that from Maidine about that because um, it might interest some of your viewers about you know one of the one of the stories that is animating anti-Russian hatred in Ukraine is the idea of the famine, or not the idea, but the actual famine of the 1930s in Ukraine. Um, but and I wrote an article about that, which which might surprise some people, but. If they haven't read, they can they'll they'll uh, be able to uh, to uh, see what I'm talking about there. But the the point I want to make is that I think you're going to see uh, the food crisis um, getting worse, and that in conjunction with the mass immigration into Europe will create chaos. I mean, it's already the case, right? So you've got all of these Ukrainians coming to Europe. You have many of them who are obviously not Ukrainians. They're just it's just another 
uh, migration flow that's now coming, you know, through Ukraine. So you got people coming all the way up from Pakistan, India. You know, um, there was a guy in Dublin who, um, it was Dave Dwyer, who filmed um, Ukraine. Uh, you know, guys queuing outside a, a refugee center in Dublin who were who came to be Ukrainian but were from India. You know, <laughs> you're kidding me. You know, and they, I think they were about maybe 35, 40, oh, 40 max. No way. I would say 35, 30 maybe. They claim to be 60, but um, and this kind of thing obviously is going to just explode. It's already exploding. And so I think with the food crisis, uh, that's already happening here. Germans are now coming to France to stock up on food. The food uh, crisis hasn't um, hit here yet. And the reason, I think, is because they want to get Macron back in. They don't want a um, food crisis before to generate the panic. They want to get right. him back in. And then they'll start bringing back the vaccine passport. And then, of course, we'll have the food crisis. Once you've got vaccine passport and food crisis, you know where that's going. You know, it'll be the vaccinated will be will get food and, and the non-vaccinated yeah. won't so and we're you know, nearly at cashless situation where you have food stamps for example yes you know yes and that's where they want and once they get to it and then start i think they're going to try and start normalizing food stamps and of course the climate crisis is the next phase of this so this is why they need macron back in uh and i think from ukraine then what you're going you know this is essentially a string they're pulling and it's just going to, obviously, it's going to cause a global food crisis uh, with over 50% of reduction now in, in grain, I believe, globally because of Ukraine, because of the, uh, the logistics crisis that you have, the massive inflation, which is going to make a lot of you know, small businesses go bust go all bust, over yeah. Europe anyway. Yeah. Um, and the massive flow into Europe. So Macron was talking about 60 million uh, Africans are going to have to come to Europe in the next few years, you know. So He's, what, I don't know that. what they're going to do, you know, they're just, and now that, that will, you know, that will be accelerated through famine because famine will hit those areas probably first because of, um, you know, the usual problems that they have in, the, in these countries with, you know, possibly droughts and, um, and, and logistics problems. You could have uh, an acceleration of that and that will create further, you know, that will just fill the sinking ship even further in Europe. Chaos no. then, chaos reigns. And what you said a moment ago about the food stamps and those being for the good citizens, of course, when you have the Chancellor of the Exchequer here instructing the Royal Mint to create a non-fungible token to prepare for centralised, uh, central bank digitalised currencies, we're obviously virtually at cashless already. Many places in Manchester and in Salford, they just won't take cash. You tap your phone to the bloody device now, you're not even tapping your, your, your bank card anymore. Once it's cashless, it'll be very easy to implement such rules and such laws that the good citizens will be given access to the food and, and the bad citizens won't. Let me, let me call you out on something that I just cannot believe, and I'm not calling you a lawyer. But Simon Coveney, who is a lawyer, uh, the Irish Foreign Minister, he said that... Um, 25,000 Ukrainians in Ireland, 85% of them are women and children. You said to me there that you have anecdotal evidence that people claiming to be Ukrainians are in fact from India. Gerard, look, I know that people can behave like sheep. I know that people have believed all sorts of bullshit. But tell me that you're not pulling my leg, that Irish people are not accepting Indian people as bona fide Ukrainians. Give over. No, I think I, I, this look. This has happened in all of the other um, flows that we've seen. So I covered 
the flow, the migration flows from Libya and from Syria. You know, the, the Syrian flow was coming up to Turkey and up to the Balkans, and the, the Libyan flow is coming across the Mediterranean. And I've covered that extensively. Yeah. And you know, you have just as this is a huge problem in the United Nations. I mean, it's essentially it's not a problem for the United Nations. The United Nations is causing the problem and is very much behind the problem, uh, where you have people from one nationality passing for another. So, for example, you take Eritrea. Eritrea is, you know, in eastern in the Horn of Africa, it's one of the only countries in the world resisting globalization on many, many uh, fronts and has had uh, suffered uh, because of that sanctions and so on. They're very independent. They don't even join the African Union. Um, they, they want nothing to do with globalization, really. And uh, they're doing their best to survive in a difficult environment, but they're getting hammered by all these globalist organizations and demonized. And uh, so if you turn up in uh, Libya as a, you know, a refugee and you're Ethiopian, say, you just pass, you, you can say that you're Eritrean and then you'll get a free pass. You'll yeah. be basically accepted as a refugee. So this is happening all over the place. Obviously, there's a racket. It's a huge racket, huge industry of middlemen. You know, um, you know, slave, it's a slave market, essentially, for, you know, trafficking people to Europe and so on. And so, yeah, obviously, I cited an example of you know, Indians. That, that, that is true. You can, people can look it up on, online. Philip Dwyer's uh, video in Dublin. What a um, You know, that, that, I'm not saying they're all doing that, but no, that no, kind no, of thing is happening. Yeah. And, you know, uh, there is obviously a racket. We don't, you know, I think a lot of the people coming into Ireland, we probably have no idea where they're coming from. But the whole idea is, is population replacement. Obviously, they're not interested in anything like a stable reproduction of our own society. They're interested in getting uh, foreigners into every country and mixing them all up so that you have a, you know, a population that is completely under the control of the values of globalization. And fighting and with one another. You, yes, you see absolutely. That? I see, when I see migrants coming here, you yeah. know, I just, just on the kind of you know, day-to-day basis, you see migrants, I see them coming to centres to collect food and they're all masked up, you know, they're all wearing masks and stuff. They're incredibly docile, incredibly, you know, these guys are not going to cause any problem, you know, they'll just take the vaccine and they'll put on the masks and they'll they'll do whatever they're told to get their pocket money. And, you know, that's already the way it is. Can I just... um... used as well as a militia against the native population. They're being used. So and can I, can I just say this? It's important I interject with this point. Um, I refuse for many years to accept that what you just said is real. And a lot of that is down to my socialist background, not um, social Democrat background, but genuine socialism. Um, Bolivarian, that's where I got my ideas. Um, Salvador Allende, these are people I, I still hold, you know, in great esteem for the things they try to do. But my trade unionist background, I couldn't get my head around that this wasn't othering. I couldn't get my head around it. I I thought, look, I I, I think these people mean well, but I'm not sure this replacement thing is genuine. I think it all comes down to, you know, turning people against one another, divide and conquer. It's othering. But I'm honest and I pride myself on it. I've had to accept that it's happening. And when I say I accept it, I don't mean yesterday. I accepted this in the last three or four years. That's what they are doing. They are diluting populations because ultimately they know that while they do what it is they do globally, we will um, obviously get, you know, understandably pissed off as we're having to compete for labour, uh, for jobs, for food, for housing with people who've come from another country. And it, it is happening. It, 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 
everything is being reduced to everything. consumerist relations. Yeah. You know, that, and, you know, this is, this is the whole point. This is why they're also attacking the natural family, you know, like yeah. a natural, the idea of a man and a woman that's becoming passe. And so it's, it's just, it's turning all relationships into commercial relationships. And, you know, that, that completely, you know, you get a society where there's no, there's no solidarity. There's no sense of, uh, there's no there's no possibility of organization because people are too diverse. Too diverse. You know, diversity yeah. is something that enriches a society if it's if it's small. You know, if you have you know some people from different countries, it can be a good thing, uh, particularly if they contribute to that society. And it, yeah. that that's diversity. This isn't diversity at all. This is essentially about making the majority population the minority. The minority. So let me ask you a quick country. question. Let me ask you a quick quick question on that. You're right. I agree with everything you said there. Is there any possibility in the future that these communities, so you have the indigenous community, I like Frank Furedi from Kent University, he's done a lot of work on this, on how when you prioritise minority cultures over the the majority or the indigenous, you know, the problems it creates. I agree with all of this. Is there any chance, this will be the final question, Garod, any chance at all that it could happen that all of our cultures, like us, the indigenous in Ireland or the indigenous in England and the immigrants, that we eventually reach some consensus where we look at one another and go, Jesus, they're playing us like fucking idiots, aren't they? Aren't they? Why don't we turn on them? Yeah, I would say the first first thing about minority um, culture, minor, you know, the obsession about minorities is that the oligarchy are a minority. They are ipso facto a minority. And yeah. so hence the obsession with minority rights, you know, because that is the only thing they think about is their own minority status. And so everything is about destroying the majority in every country and the aspirations of majority, no matter what race or nationality they are. Uh, it's all about attacking the majority. And so that's a, a divide and rule policy. Secondly, on resolving this long term, it, it will... I really believe it will be a return of natural law. Again, as a, as a revert to, to, to Christianity, uh, the traditional Catholic, uh, I, I see this as, you know, the, the two principles of charity will, will, will have to prevail in society to resolve this. Hence, uh, you know, which is love of God and love of your, of your neighbor. Um, you know, if in this mess, because this is going to be, you know, a catastrophic mess, this is the only thing that will save everybody. You know, it's the only thing that will sort of, Allow us to build some kind of a, a society, a society that that is workable. Um, so it will have to be, you know, these principles will have to come back. Otherwise, it will be complete chaos, like pretty much the fall of the Roman Empire in, you know, the fifth century. Uh, you're going to have a period of sort of marauding gangs and and so on. It was, it, you know, it was essentially the church that reconstructed society and uh, re-civilized Europe. And I think that's, you know, that's going to happen, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a long time before that happens because it's the only you know the, the whole idea of treating your neighbor well is christian you know the romans would have laughed at that did laugh at it and 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 you know persecuted christians um so the christian concept of charity of loving your neighbor as yourself that's what will get us out of it eventually but uh, by then you know i think this society as you know will have been destroyed so i think you know we're we're looking at kind of you know, we're we're in the descent towards the abyss right now, not in the necessarily in the reconstruction phase. But you know, we should you know to come back to what I was saying earlier about electoral politics. I think there's very little we can hope for in electoral politics. I think we should be looking at um, 
constructing alternatives. alternatives you know, society, a certain yeah. amount of the immigrant communities also, of course, are, are on our side, we being people who are critical of globalization, yeah. you know, because they can see that people who are essentially, you know, the reason why they are here is also because the same people like Soros and so on are, are screwing their countries. And that, you know, that's sort of, they can, a lot of people in Ireland and in Europe uh, from the immigrant communities can see that. I mean, people forget that there are people from the immigrant communities in France who vote Le Pen because yeah. they think there's too many foreigners there too. They're, they're, you know? they're seeing and a bit I'm of... sure there was people in England in the 1960s and 70s who probably thought, hey, yeah. there's too many Irish people here as well. I can understand the point of view of the English. You know, it's like you, people should, normal people should be able to realize that, you know, if you come to a party and there's maybe, you know, there's maybe too many of us, you know, <laughs> it's like it, yeah. should be, it should be a normal human reflex We're to think played. maybe it's a bit unreasonable to expect Gerald, can we um, up, can we pick know? this up again next time, sooner rather than later? By the way, I'm sure you're going to be watching this debate this evening, uh, Le Pen and and Macron. Thanks for coming back. I'm going to mention English dot or excuse me, English dot al That's M A Y A D E N. English dot al and uh, you'll find Gerald there under authors. Read his articles. Um, thanks for that. That was well, also my website. If you manage to get on Gerald Gerardo, uh, come on the door again. I should put that on my own website, actually, a link to it. I'll do that. Do, do if you can. Thanks. I will, of course, mate. Thanks for coming back on. Um, can't wait for next time. Thanks, Gerard. Bye for now. Thanks. Bye, Sloan Tommel. Bye, bye, bye. Gerardo, come on. Uh, terrific uh, journalist, broadcaster, uh, writer. Fascinating stuff, that, isn't it? About Brigitte Macron and the rise of On Marsh and, and Emmanuel Macron, the former Rothschild banker. Really interesting. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Back with you tomorrow at five o'clock UK time with Thursday's Richie Allen show. Until then, speaking of people who were groomed, in the case of Bono, it was Bill Clinton and others and Bill Gates. Anyway, see you tomorrow. Is it getting better? Do you feel the same?